0: Hello everyone. I'm Chase, second string Bozeman. and uh, it's so exciting just to be able to just um, speak the message today. Um, and I'm just um, to be quite honest, like as you can see, I have like all these books and all these electronics over here. I'm very nervous. So let's go to God in a word of prayer before we begin. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, Father God, thank you so much for just bringing us here today, just to hear Your word, God. God, I just pray that you can put aside my ego, my whole person, God, to speak clearly through me, Lord. I just pray that as we go over these passages and we look through the first 12 chapters of John, that we can actually see how you are God made flesh, Jesus. Um, Lord, I just pray that you can um, give insight into these words, God, and the Spirit can just work on the hearts of the men and women here gathered today, God, and you can reveal yourself to them in a profound way. Um, In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Alright, so the slides are coming Okay, so um, we're going through the book of John, the gospel of John, the gospel according to John. And something that's really... First slide, please. Um, Something that's so interesting about the gospel of John, something that stands out immediately once you start reading, is... This isn't like the other Gospels at all. At all. It stands out in such a profound way that it lacks many of the other things that some of the other Gospels have. So the other Gospels are Mark, Matthew, and Luke. And consider this. In our reading, we're up to chapter 11 in the Gospel of, Mark, uh, Gospel of John, that there are no parables. There hasn't been a single parable shared. Um, there's no narrative as to the birth of Christ. Um, There's no exercising of demons. And suspiciously, um, there is no transfiguration narrative. So there's like key points that are missing from this gospel that brings us into a deeper question. And furthermore, whereas the other gospel accounts um, elaborate and go on and on about the different works of Jesus. In fact, the other gospels tend to have about 20 miracles packed into them. However, the Gospel of John reduces it to a very specific seven miracles. So it's like, who wrote this? And what's, what's going on here? And what's trying to be said here? So the Gospel of John, um, just to like, place this like, gospel in context before we get to the end of the message. Um, the Gospel of John was actually one of the last books um, put into the canonical Bible. It came out in 90 AD or around 100 AD, over 60 years after Jesus had died. Um, And it's assumed to be written by John, the Apostle, or another John who was leading the church earlier. And even though I mentioned that there's no transfiguration narrative in this um, gospel account, however, in reading the Gospel of John, you get the sense that this is a gospel from someone who spent a lifetime thinking about who the person of Jesus was and who was he to the nation of Israel. So it starts off very differently. I mentioned that there is no birth account of Jesus. In fact, the very beginning of John, I'll read the first line, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. This echoes Genesis 1. So from here, we have this idea that this gospel account is trying to tell us something radically different, not covered by the other gospels. And what it's trying to tell us is that Jesus is in fact God. Now that may not be profound in today's day and age, but back then to the Jewish audience, that would have blown them, their mind. That would have sounded blasphemous. You're saying that there's a person walking amongst us that is our Holy One? That doesn't sound right. So I would like to share um, a, brief, a brief story. Okay. So if you were walking along on the campus of Toronto University, you would happen upon a bench with a figure slumped over in rest. At first, you would believe it to be a person, but as you draw near, you notice that the garment covering him is as hard as stone. And upon inspection, you would see that it's actually sheets of brass wrapped around a laying figure, obscuring his face and his body. The only visible appendage of this statue would be the two feet coming out beneath the blanket, each foot pierced with holes in it. This sculpture was, um, was put together by a Canadian sculptor, Timothy Schultz, and it's called Jesus the Homeless, and it depicts Jesus as a homeless person sleeping on a bench. And the thing is, if you didn't know what you were looking at, and if you didn't know what you were looking for, you might mistake this for a homeless person, or a very weird piece of art. But to the Christian observer, you would notice the signs, you would see his pierced foot, Likewise, throughout the account of John, there's many additional miracles that Jesus gives the Jews to prove who he is. Are you with me, church? Have I kind of like tied a knot here? Um, Next slide, please. So there's seven miracles. Um, And just to kind of go over them very briefly, because it's very important to see um, what Jesus is trying to accomplish in these miracles. So the very first miracle, Jesus appears at a wedding. And... Um, When asked to serve to help out with the amount of wine going, um, the the loss of wine and the fact that there was no more wine left, he was called upon to serve. And we have this scripture from the Old Testament that even kind of mirrors what Jesus is doing here. And this scripture points out um, in kind of like a messianic language that the kingdom of God in the future is going to be a wedding banquet filled with the finest wines. So you see that people are looking forward to, hey, God is going to meet our every need, and he wants to, like, share his riches with us. He wants to share his wine with us. He wants to share prosperity with us. So this would have got the Jews thinking. And then next we see a miracle of him healing the official's son. In this story, he just tells the official. The official comes up to him and says, hey, my son is sick. He's ill. Can you please come and heal him? And Jesus basically gives him a word and tells him, your son has been healed. And the official goes back home. It would have been a long journey. And he discovers that his son has been healed. And this mirrors directly that the word of God has the power of resurrection. And the Jews would have thought, like, who is it that can just speak a word and bring someone back to life but God? And so they're still confused. They're like, who is this man? Who is, what is he doing? And then, like, in continuing through the other miracles, you see Jesus repeatedly show up at some of the most important festivals for the Jewish nation. And he's something of a party crasher. He shows up to Passover and he's like, oh, you think that, you know, you're going to eat this bread. Well, guess what? I am the bread of life. You know, I am that thing that you are. um, I am that bread. I am the thing that you're trying to um, draw yourself close to. Um, Excuse me. So the point that I'm trying to, like, connect through all these narratives is that Jesus is being very intentional about when he shows up, how he demonstrates his power. And he always does it in a way that's controversial. He heals a man on the Sabbath, which was unheard of. He feeds the 5,000 during Passover, which would have invoked the manna from heaven narrative that we receive in Exodus. He makes the blind see, which, if you read all of the Old Testament, all 900 pages, not a single blind person is made to see. And furthermore than that, um, he raises the dead. And the only person that raises the dead is, other than God, is his prophet Elisha and Elisha. Um, Those are two different names, by the way. Um, So you get this narrative where Jesus is repeatedly kind of intruding on their religious worship. He's repeatedly challenging the institutions that they worship through. And he's in fact saying, that way that you worship God, that thing that brings you close to God, that's actually me. That's actually pointing to me. And how did the Jews respond? Well, if you read, if you just glimpse through the Gospel of John, you get these miracles, and you get another chapter of people arguing over who Jesus is. And it alternates back and forth. Like the first, the first 11 chapters are all Jesus work, doing some profound work that challenges the faith of the Jewish people, and then them arguing over who is he? Is he demon-possessed? Under whose authority is he doing these things? Who does he think he is? Like, that's like him coming into, I guess, like, the cookout and saying he has the best potato salad. Him kind of, like, swiping it off the table and he's like, oh, you think this is potato salad? I am the potato salad. <laughs> and it would just be like, I thought, that, I thought that would, like, really connect with this particular audience. But um, the fact is, like, he's coming into these parties and he's just being a complete party wrecker. And so... I think we nowadays can be like, oh, how could those Pharisees have been so like cruel and mean? And if somebody was intruding on your way of worship, one, coming into your party, messing it up, making all these claims, doing these profound miracles. It's like I just we just need to get rid of this person. He's frustrating me. I got people asking me questions about him and I don't know how to answer them. So you get the sense that this would have been very, very difficult for the Jewish people of that day to wrap their head around. It's like, how can it be, and this is a command, it's like in the Ten Commandments, not that those are any more important than any other thing said in the Bible, but the Jewish people thought that to claim to be God was blasphemous. To claim to, there was this, there were so caught up in the fact that God could not be a man because God was so far above of humanity. Yet you have this Jesus doing the works of God, doing miracles that you only see God do in Scripture, Old Testament. So that leaves us with a question. Next slide. Next slide. How do we kill this dude? (laughs) How do we get rid of this dude that's messing up our way of life, that's messing up our worship, that's coming between... Us and God and claims to be all these things. So I'm going to read a very brief segment of scripture, which um, if you can't see it, it's John 11:45 45 and 48. And this is immediately after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. So It reads, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary, Lazarus is Mary's brother had seen what Jesus did and believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting at the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come in and take both our temple and our nation. That seems like a very interesting conclusion that they reach. Their first, their biggest concern is that if we let this man continue doing what he's doing, serving people, healing people, professing this kingdom of, this new kingdom of God and how it's come, the first thing that's going to happen to us is some sort of political dispute. And isn't that the way that our society is now? And it's, it's crazy to me because the point of um, John's gospel is to say that not only is Jesus a fulfillment of the law and God made flesh. And that it's to show that Jesus challenged the religious institution and the religiosity outlined by the Jewish leaders. And he did this as a means to bring the nation of Israel close to God. It's as if he's saying you have all of these ways to bring you close to God. You have all these things that you're doing to bring you close to God. Yet you don't recognize him when he's among you. Like, I'm doing the works of my Father, the Father that you worship, yet you don't recognize me. You don't see how I fulfill the law that you are trying to, um, trying to conduct yourselves with. And this, so Jesus repeatedly shows up at Jewish festivals, repeatedly frustrates their understanding. But the thing is, at its very core, while Christianity is not in itself political, it takes up political space. And that's something that's really fascinating because if you engage in anyone on a conversation about your faith and what you believe, naturally the conversation will steer to something political. Naturally the conversation will steer to something divisive. What the Jewish leaders were concerned with was their power. They were concerned with their way of worship. And the way that this Jesus conducted himself was a threat to power. Jesus challenges empty worship and that his love, his purity and service disrupts those power structures that we cling on to and just even consider like, is it a surprise to you when you try to live your best Christian life that you're met with opposition for me, an uh, example like, um, there was a situation where um, I was at work and I was texted and there was like an event later on in that day and someone needed a ride and so naturally I'm like okay I'll give you a ride where do you live and they're like oh I live in Sandbridge and I'm like okay (laughs) I live in Sandbridge and if y'all are not familiar with the area Sandbridge is far from everyone it's on the other side of the moon even if you live 10 minutes from it you live 30 minutes from it it is really really far and I'm like amen praise God right you know this is what I do so I get back into my queue. I start typing away being a good government employee. And someone's like, hey, Chance, what are you doing later on this night? And I was like, oh, I'm going to church. And, um, and they're like, oh, do you want to hang out before church or something like that? I was like, well, you know, I can't. I have to go to Sandbridge to pick up someone for church. And they're like, where's your church? I was like, it's in Norfolk. And he's like, don't you live in Norfolk? And I was like, yes. And he was like, why would you do that? But like, say And... Me in my mind I'm like that's a good question But the the point The point that I'm trying to make is The first inclination is Why would you be kind Why would you be generous with your resources To help serve someone And that's just a very small example Of Someone assuming that like I have the right to my time I have the right to my resource I should use it the way I see fit But the thing about this world Is that It's inherently selfish and inherently feeds into its own idolatry. So that was a big statement. Let me unpack that. So consider, how does the Christian life challenge the following strongholds in our world? How does it challenge marriage? I read statistics the other week that over 96% 96 of people are sexually active before marriage. So that makes our purity as a church our... Abstinence from sex before marriage Very, very different from the world Extremely different from the world So much so, and by the way, if you're curious Some of the older generation might be curious This study went back to the 1950s So even like grandma and grandpa Were like getting, you know, getting it on That's what I'm trying to say So this is not, this is not this generation thing It's always been like this It's not like social media has made this worse It's just that people have always been the same I'm just being honest. I'm being very, very thorough in my uh, research of this kind of thing. But the fact of the matter is li- living a pure life will challenge someone at your work. I've heard stories of like sisters and brothers sharing about the relationship with other people in the church. And they're like, oh, okay. Do you, think, do you think so-and-so is cute? Have you like made out with them? Are you going out for drinks? Like when are you going you know, you to you know, make things pop in? And, and then maybe you told them about encouragement dates. And then you had to deal with that weirdness. So, but the thing is, people inherently want you to not be good. And it's not because people have lost, well, it's not because people don't believe good exists. It's just that the hope of this world is fading. The hope of this world is not here. We live in a world that immediately assumes that your neighbor has your worst, has your worst in mind. That nobody loves you, that no one's going to stick their neck out for you, and that there's nothing that you can cling on to for hope. So why would I risk being hurt over and over again and be a victim of society? And this is all packed into, Jesus just came to serve. He just came to feed. He came to heal. Yet the moment that his message started like penetrating like the power structures of the world, there was immediate, um, there was immediate backlash. It's something to consider that if you ever, if you ever, like maybe this is a homework assignment, if you ever get a chance to read the book of Acts, consider that this is a, the book of Acts follows like the early church. And in the very beginning, it talks about them sharing everything in common their lands, their money, their house, and just loving one another and serving one another, being devoted to the word. It's this grassroots movement of people who love each other and who are like bound together and fending for one another. But as that movement grows, the end of Acts, practically the last half Paul is in trial after trial as people continuously bring him up as an offender bring him up as like a heathen bringing him up as like some sort of heretic or some sort of like um, you know enemy of the state it's just crazy how a small movement started out of the love of a god can become so political so quickly and so the question is like how do you kill a miracle And the thing is, I feel like we know that the life that we're called to is controversial. That's why we don't live that life. We would rather shrink back in ourselves to avoid the hard conversations, to avoid being hurt over and over again. And trust me, I'm not trying to put anyone's hurt over anybody else's hurt. But who here in the service of God has been hurt? Amen. (laughs) Amen. Because it's so true. Because we are a congregation. We are a people that are joined together by the fruits of the Spirit. We are joined together by love, by patience, by self-control, by, I've listed them over here, purity, hope, and goodness. And the thing is, these fruits frustrate the world because they don't have them. And sometimes our reaction can be, instead of relying more on God, relying more on his word, relying more on his promises, we can shrink back into ourselves. We can think to ourselves, like, who, who am I? Who am I to do these things? I can't tell you the last time, I, and I'm not Jesus, I can't tell you the last time that, you know, I took my friend's lunch and turned it into a thousand lunches. I can't tell you the last time that I personally walked on water, because I don't, and I would... I'd be having too much fun with that, so God knows my heart. <laughs> I can't tell you the last time that I turned water into wine, because that would definitely be really cool. It save me a lot of money. I can't tell you the last time that any of these miracles are in my life. And my thought, I don't know if you feel this way, church. My thought is, well, I worship Jesus. I love Jesus. I'm trying to act like Jesus, but I'm not Jesus. You know, I can't do what he does. What he does is too high, so I'll shrink it down. I'll leave, like, little happy notes on my coworkers' desk. I won't invite them out to church. I'm not gonna really serve my neighbor, but I'll wave to them really intentionally, you know? Or, you know, maybe with my wife, it's like, I won't, like, you know, apologize, but maybe if I do something nice for her, maybe that kind of makes up for it, you know? Or maybe it's not an issue anymore. Maybe, maybe everything's good. So, I know as a guy, that can definitely be my thing. I'll just, I'll just shrink a little bit into the couch and not raise my voice. Or maybe even as a teen, maybe the thought is church is just something... I mean, I bet you it's not just teens that think like this. Church is something for Fridays, for Wednesday nights, for Sunday mornings. And maybe I won't tell my friends that I go to church because that's kind of weird. I don't want them to not show me that cool song that came out by, I don't know, Drake. (laughs) I want to feel accepted. Therefore, I don't want my world to be, I don't want this world that I've made for myself to be challenged by my life as a Christian. And so, consciously, every day we can make these small decisions that undermine Christ, that undermine what he's done for us, and that takes the power out of the Holy Spirit that's at work in us. That's how you would kill a miracle. Um, Next slide, please. Okay, so this is supposed to be in white, text, and it says, the modern miracle of the church. Sorry, that didn't come out like that. But, so Jesus shares this amazing scripture in a later passage in John. He says, believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe in the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father, I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Jesus died and ascended into heaven. Died, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. And, but before he does all that, before he goes and is crucified, he gives us this promise that it's better for him to go away and that we his disciples will go on to do greater things. I don't know what his metric of greater things was, but I personally find that the things he did were spectacular, were law-bending, scientifically improbable and supernatural. And so I can shrink into myself, like, why is it better for Christ to be in heaven and not on earth? And why would... And, even reading through those miracles, it could even be thought, did the miracles end with Jesus? Have miracles died? Have they left this world? Do they not exist anymore? Is nothing inspiring anymore? But the thing is, God's miracles did not end with Jesus. God's miracle did not end with Paul or the early church leaders. But God's miracle is living and active within you. It's, act, it's waiting to act upon you. It's waiting to dwell in you. And Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended so that his Holy Spirit would guide your steps and occupy your body. And the Holy Spirit should not be underestimated, brothers and sisters. And neither should the church. The church should not be underestimated. And once you realize what the weapons of the kingdom are and the arsenal at your command, like who can stop you? It's so amazing just to even consider this power at work in us. So what would a modern day miracle look like? It would probably look a lot like people sitting in this room. In a world that is divided by race, in a world that's divided by sexuality, that's divided you know, by gender norms, that's divided by what makes you successful, what makes you beautiful, what makes you relevant, what makes you popular for so many different men and women to be sitting in this room joined together to be listening to the word of God that's exceptional and for and even more than that for those men and women of all those different socioeconomic backgrounds to be joined together in one mission that's exceptional for that whole entire group of people not to have any sort of like order other than God here on earth that's really exceptional I don't know if, if you haven't been like, you know, part of like, you know, our church for a long time. I want to encourage you to share your life with us as we share our lives with you. There are so many amazing testimonies of God's power here in this body. And there's so many amazing examples of like service. There's so many examples of love, of hope, baked into this body. And it's only because that we rely on His Holy Spirit that we get to share these stories. And it just blows my mind over again and again what people can accomplish. And it's something that the world is pining for. And just like I've mentioned these like weapons of like the spirit that God has given us. So he's given us this body. So that way we would not be lacking anything. We have doctors. We have trash collectors. We have nurses. We just baptize another nurse. We have doctors. We have engineers. We have unemployed people. We have unemployed people living with other people that sustain their needs kids. <laughs> so we have, this, we have this wild collection of different people with so many radical different opinions and views and outlooks all joined together in one body washed by the blood of Christ. I don't know about you, but like when I go to work, let me tell you what people do. People complain, people like gossip, people are like, man, do you know what our boss is doing? Yeah, man, he... I don't know, he wrote up to HR that I was chewing gum too loudly. And it's like, man, that's whack. You know, it's like they just go back and forth. And like, they like make factions against one another. And I'm like, I'm just here to like, you know, make my wage and leave at three. But it just blows my mind like how divided and lonely the world is. Um, Something that's very interesting. So I mentioned that this world actively wants to kill miracles. This world is actively against the church. It's actively against the relationships in the church. Satan wants to kill, steal, and destroy. And do you know how he does that? He does that by attacking your assumptions, attacking your expectations, and attacking each relationship here in the church. And what's, what's the effect of that? The thing is, you don't notice it at first. You know, you say like, hey, maybe I wasn't really offended by that, so I'm just going like to overlook that offense. But then with time, bitterness comes in. Mm -hmm. And then you don't like the worship. And then you don't like the lesson. And then we start too late. And then no one texts me. And no one calls me. And the thing is, those are very real concerns. And I'm not trying to invalidate anyone's pain. Because those are issues that ought to be addressed. That ought to be spoken about. And we ought to be able to speak about those things. But our biggest gift to the world, church, is our love. It's not... Sometimes I feel like we can be all about the greatest, the great commission, while leaving out the greatest commandment. And it can be, do you know how difficult it is to love people in this world? Very, very difficult. Let me tell you about my mom. So I love my mom. I love my mom. I hope she sees this. I really love my mom. My mom is like 100% team chance. Like she'll buy the shirt. My mom loves me. But the thing is, my mom is my mom. <laughs> my mom is my mom, and I don't ever think I'm going to be older than eight in her eyes. Yeah. And, you know, there has been, had, because I was a Christian, I've had to, like, hey, like, set some boundaries. And just be like, hey, mom, like, can I do my own finances, please? Can I make my <laughs> own food? Can I do these own things for myself? Or even more so, like another relationship that I have, I have, there's someone who sits next to me at work that is consistently negative. Every day, he's like some sort of radio spouting out really negative thoughts all the time. And you can feed in, I can feed into those things. I can start like, yeah, man, I hate that thing that's happening over in Sri Lanka or something like that. Or, oh yeah, I really do think the problem starts with early childhood education. Yeah, that's the thing I should be rallying behind. But then I can even start, in my heart, disliking this man. I can start not wanting to talk to him. When I get up and go get cake for my other coworkers, sorry, I'm missing one piece of cake with your name on it. You know? It can, but it's little things like that. And I think sometimes as a church, we think that love has to be this big, amazing, you know, wonderful, bountiful thing. But the thing is, love is being consistent in one another's life for the intention of reflecting Christ in yours. And the world needs this. There are more people depressed, lonely, anxious, trapped, sitting in darkness in my job than I can even count. And I bet you some of them are also in this room and part of this church too. Our love needs to change cultures. Our love needs to challenge the power structures of this world. We need to love beyond race. We need to love beyond interest, beyond hobby, beyond preferential treatment. We need to love beyond family lines. We need to challenge how the world views love. And the gospel of Christ is that we are indescribably deplorable. However, our heart can be healed by him. And that the God of creation loves us deeply, first and foremost, for what we are. Not what we can do, not what we can provide, not how we look, not what our status is, not what we can offer him. It's that God wants to invite us into a relationship with Him to love and to live out true humanity. Humanity that is vulnerable. Humanity that takes risks to love people unconditionally. And this is culturally shattering for a world that expects transactional relationships. So church, I plead to the Holy Spirit at work in you to love one another. To love one another when it hurts. To love one another when you feel betrayed. And that even meditate on this, that Jesus took away all of our debts, but he left one debt outstanding. And that is the remaining debt to love one another. The remaining debt to embrace. The remaining debt to mourn with those who mourn. The remaining debt to make peace between enemies. And the remaining debt to tend to the poor and defenseless. So I want to challenge you, church, that in today's day and age that loving unconditionally is a modern miracle. Thank you for letting me share.